Welcome to the Functional Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Erin Holt. I'm a functional medicine nutritionist with a feisty attitude in over a decade of clinical experience. I work with women all over the world through my online programs, and I'm also the founder of the Functional Nutrition Academy, a 12-month practitioner mentorship where I help other nutrition pros level up with functional medicine methodologies. I've got a bone to pick with diet culture and the conventional healthcare model that are both systematically failing so many of us. Creating a new model is my life's work, and this is what the show's all about. Please keep in mind this podcast is created for educational purposes only and should never be used as a replacement for medical diagnosis or treatment. If you like what you hear today, I'd love for you to subscribe, leave a review in iTunes, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Thanks for joining me. Now let's dive deep. With the state of the world over the past couple of years, so many of my clients and listeners have told me that their sleep has really been impacted. So I feel I'd be doing you a massive disservice if I didn't introduce you to our sponsor, Ned, because they have a solution for you. Ned's full spectrum hemp oil is extracted from USDA certified organic hemp plants. It's grown by an independent farmer and his family in Colorado. Now, Ned's co-founder and I sat down and had a really lovely conversation about sourcing and farming practices and how they chose their farm. And this company is the real deal. I've been using these products for a while now with incredible results. So Ned's best selling sleep blend offers a natural solution for a good night's sleep. It contains CBN, which is a powerful cannabinoid that promotes sleep. It has seven 150 milligrams of CBD, and it also has uh, organic and wildcrafted botanicals. You all know that I love Nervine herbs. So it has oat straw, lemon balm, passion flower, skull cap. These are herbs that help to relax the body and promote sleep. If you need help unwinding at night, I highly recommend purchasing the Dream Set because it also contains Mellow, which is their awesome magnesium blend that features GABA and L-theanine. This is a non negotiable in my nighttime routine lately. If you'd like to conquer sleep with Ned's dream set, functional nutrition podcast listeners get 15% off with code funk. Go to helloned.com forward slash funk or enter code funk at checkout. That's H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D.com slash F-U-N-K to get 15% off. Thank you, Ned, for sponsoring the show and offering our listeners a natural remedy for some of life's most common health issues. Hello, my friends. Today is the day you get to hear from Dr. Lara Brighton. I got to sit down with Lara herself and talk all things endometriosis. So Lara is a really big deal in the women's health world. If you're not familiar with her, I'm just going to read her short bio so you understand who we're talking to. She's a naturopathic doctor, best-selling author of the books, The Period Repair Manual and Hormone Repair Manual. These are just really awesome, solid, practical guides to uh, treating period problems and hormone imbalance. She has a very strong science background. She'll actually talk a little bit of her background, or maybe we... Maybe we talked about this off air. Her her uh, background originally was in evolutionary biology. I actually don't know if she's going to say that on the episode, but I think that's super cool. But she does also sit on several advisory boards. She's the lead author on a couple of peer-reviewed papers. So like I'm saying, she's a, she's a big deal. She has over 20 years experience in women's health. Um, she currently has consulting rooms in New Zealand where she treats women with PCOS PMS, endometriosis, perimenopause, and other hormone and period-related health problems. So like I said, we're going to talk about endometriosis, and there is a bit of a misunderstanding that I want to clear up with this episode, is that endometriosis is a hormone problem. Now, and in fact, I just just before I pulled out the mic, I got a message on Instagram saying something similar. I have high estrogen. What do I do? I've been diagnosed with, with endometriosis. It isn't, as you'll learn today, hormones absolutely can contribute to the endometriosis picture, but they do not cause the endometriosis picture. So part of your overall treatment strategy and plan for endo should absolutely include hormones, but that's not where it ends. And we talk a lot about this in Your Hormone Revival 
We talk a lot about immune system support as well. And uh, as you'll learn today, that there's really a lot of overlap with immune system dysfunction and endometriosis. So we do open up the cart for your hormone revival September 1st. That is our three-month hormone rebalancing program where you get access to functional lab testing. You get a one-on-one appointment with a provider. You get lots and lots and lots of um, information and education about hormones, and you get some live nervous system support classes, which is my personal favorite part of the program. So that starts September 1st. You have to get on the wait list. We'll email you as soon as that opens. And uh, before the show begins, I do want to just announce that Lara Brighton has agreed to teach a masterclass in the Functional Nutrition Academy. So that is coming coming up. Uh, she will be teaching on perimenopause and bioidentical hormones for all of the practitioners who are in the FNA. And FNA is currently open for enrollment. So head to functionalnutritionacademy.com apply and we'll let you know if you're a good fit. Now, without much further ado, here's Lara. Okay. Well, welcome to the show. I am beyond excited to have you here. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Erin. I'm looking forward to it. So the name of the game today is going to be endometriosis. And, um, we know now we kind of understand that hormonal imbalance isn't the thing that causes endometriosis, which is a little tricky because so much of the conventional approach is really geared at hormones. Um, we I've talked about the bacterial contamination theory of endometriosis. So I'd love to get into that a little bit. Um, but what I have found clinically speaking, I mean, I think I love alternative medicine, functional medicine for really giving the gut, you know, it's time in the sun, but I think that we can sometimes oversimplify really complex disease process, but processes by just being like, oh, you just got to fix the gut, fix the gut and all the problems <laughs> go away. And I have certainly have not found that to be true, especially with endometriosis. Okay. I think that's just dealing with the gut or just looking to the gut is an over overly simplified approach because endometriosis is so multifactorial. And I know, and I'm sure you can speak more to this, that the statement endometriosis is an autoimmune disease is quite controversial. So we're not really going there, but looking at endometriosis as a disease of immune dysfunction is really kind of what you talk a lot about. And there's a lot Mm. of research to back up all of this. So that's kind of what I'm thinking for today's conversation. Um, The immune side of endo. Yeah. The immune side of endo, right? And it kind of help, helps ex- us understand why it's such a complex thing to to treat. Mm-hmm. Um, before we do that, can you? I'm sh- I know a lot of listeners are quite familiar with your work, but can you just give a little bit of background as to how you came to be really a woman's health expert? Um, and are you seeing more of these complex situations like endometriosis? Are you seeing that more commonly in the work that you do? Yeah, I'll speak to that first. I think endo is getting worse generation by generation. I'm seeing, yeah, cases of endometriosis that are, as I'm sure you're seeing some of them too, like off the charts, like really severe pain and inflammation and damage that I I wasn't, I mean, I was treating women 25 years ago and quite a few women, quite a few of them had endo and it wasn't like that. So I think there's some epigenetic things happening. We can sort of speculate what some of that, I don't think it's just increased diagnosis. I think the condition is getting worse, which is, yeah, concerning and obviously very distressing for the women who are affected. So, but my um, background generally is, you know, as you said in the intro, I'm a naturopathic doctor. I've been practicing for 25 years, pretty much almost full-time, you know, Monday to Friday, nine to five on the ground, treating people with PCOS, endo, perimenopause. And, but I came at this, when I first started, I was in more general practice. And, a, but of course, a lot of the patients coming to see me were women and needed alternatives to, at that time, you know, quite high dose birth control pills and old school hormone replacement therapy. And just like things have improved somewhat because for example, 25 years ago, we didn't even have the hormonal IUD, right? Like that's, it's hard to imagine women's health without that, but that's how it, you know, 25 years ago, that didn't exist. 
So that's broadly my background, but one thing that's definitely influenced me, and I'm, I'm bringing it up because I just revisited last week, one of the places where I did some of my science training, I started out as an evolutionary biologist and published a peer reviewed paper in sex differences in foraging behavior. Uh, and, and so I see a lot of things through the lens of evolutionary biology. I've long been interested in female physiology specifically and kind of normalizing that as the, the main type of human physiology and male physiology is like a, a weird you know, <laughs> side issue sort of just because we're, we're often, I think the narrative in medicine is that we've got the human body, which is the male body. And then all the women stuff is like an added complication. But I would say, obviously, female physiology is who we are. I mean, as humans, it's, um, and there's no reason why female reproductive physiology should be complicated or difficult or a liability. I mean, it, sh it should function. It, it's, it's, it does function very well. And often women's symptoms respond incredibly well to some quite simple diet and nutritional strategies, which is what I could see early on 25 years ago that I was getting better results than I'd even been taught to expect. So of course I've had a chance to build on that for a couple of decades and try to figure out what works and what doesn't work. I think that's just such a different message than we receive about our female bodies, which is like, well, it's a little weird. It's a little funky, kind of shameful. Don't do that. Cover that. Shut this down. And I think that I love hearing, um, even what you said, like our physiology, our bodies respond really well. Even just yeah. that statement alone, like thinking that my body as a woman can respond yeah. well to, to anything is, is not the narrative, right. That we get. Right. I know. And we've had this narrative is that you've got health and then somehow women like female reproductive health is in a separate compartment and sort of treated separately. And it's like, okay, well, you've got general health that responds and then you've got female health, which you have to like shut down with hormonal birth control. It's sort of this like, you know, compartmentalized, which doesn't make any sense at all. And of course, as you know, as you know, I've found all of these menstrual symptoms respond to changes we make to our general health because they're just part of our general health. They're not separate. Yeah. I know. I, I love that female uh, hormones are getting like the time in the sun that they yeah. deserve, but it's also, you know, there's it's sexy and it's glamorous to be like, Oh, yeah. how do I balance my hormones, fix my hormones. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, you know, it's all the same, right? It's, yeah. like, it's the same body. They're going to yeah. really, I always try to uh, help folks understand that like hormone imbalance is like a byproduct. It's not like the yeah. thing that needs to be fixed in most cases. Right. It's what I call in my book, period repair manual, our monthly report cards. So regular ovulation, if we're talking about hormone balance for women, I mean, very generally and quite importantly, it's all about regular ovulation. That's how we make hormones. So regular ovulation is our monthly report card. There's lots of ways to lose ovulation, as you know, including under eating, basically anything that goes wrong with our health can show up in dysregulation of ovulation and female hormones. So super important to understand. And like, yeah. I, don't, I just don't think we can hear that message enough. So yeah. let's talk about endometriosis yes. and I think even just taking it from the top, talking about like, what is it? What are some symptoms and signs that somebody might be dealing with this or should get checked out? How do we get diagnosed? Kind of like the basics to start us off. Yeah. Yeah. So first to say it affects about one in 10 women. So it's not a small number. Um, it's quite classically, unfortunately, associated with quite a long time to diagnosis, I think an average of about nine or 10 years from the onset of symptoms to getting a diagnosis, because it has been tricky to diagnose. So what it is, it is when there is tissue that is similar to endometrial tissue or similar to um, the uterine lining tissue, but it exists in places other than inside the uterus. So it's, you know, on the ovaries quite typically, or just in the pelvic cavity, you know, adhered to the wall of the pelvic cavity, sitting behind the uterus, all these things. Um, and then, but importantly, it's not just sitting there, it's actually actively inflamed. And so there are these inflammatory lesions that um, cause pain. Well, the whole, the condition generally is associated with 
usually quite severe pain, although you weirdly can have kind of a subclinical endo where there's no pain, which is can affect fertility, which is a little tricky. But in the classic case, there's quite a bit of pain and it's often debilitating. So one takeaway message for everyone is debilitating pain is never normal. That's not normal period pain. Like if you are curled in a ball or, you know, have to miss school or work or can't get any relief from like a basic Advil, then there's something else going on. There can be other causes apart from endo of debilitating pain, of course. So it's important to get assessed by a doctor and try to figure out what's going on. But endometriosis is probably the most common explanation for that level of pain. And yeah, it can also cause infertility. So that's often when it comes onto people's radar. Um, it can cause other like bladder symptoms and bowel symptoms. And yeah, it's, it's an inflammatory, it's classified as an inflammatory disease. So the tissue that it, that exists normally in our uterus, yes, we are, we see that in endometriosis, that tissue, that uterine tissue is growing in other places. Yeah. Although it's slightly different tissue. So something it's either and as you probably know, there's a big debate about where does this, where is this tissue coming from? Was it laid down before birth? Is it coming via what's called retrograde menstruation? I think that the research suggests is it's there's multiple origins of it. It's probably not just one. So there's still some question marks about that. Can you explain yeah. what, what retrograde yeah. menstruation means? Yeah. So obviously our, when we shed our uterine lining, it's supposed to come out through the cervix and out the vagina and that's the normal route but in almost all of us like 95% of us get some degree of the menstrual fluid exiting the uterus backwards up via the fallopian tubes and out into the pelvic cavity and in most people the immune system just goes oh oh that's well that shouldn't be there and I'll just you know I'll clean that up and remove that and all is you know we carry on all is good but for some people, um, yeah, all is not good. The immune system really falls down on the job of like cleaning it up and potentially starts being involved in actively inflaming it. And just for everyone listening, there, I mean, there is some debate about retrograde menstruation and whether whether that explains all types of endometriosis. And it clearly doesn't. I mean, that's what I said earlier, like there's other origins. There's some evidence that it either spreads, you know, by the different lymphatic system or um maybe perhaps even laid down before birth in some cases so there's some complexity about how the lesions get there and just to say again the tissue itself is a, is quite is a little it's quite different than the normal uterine lining tissue for example it has um quite a strong nerve supply which normal uterine lining tissue does not so there's this is part of the science is trying to figure out, you know, biochemically and cellular differences with endometriosis lesions and, you know, how it's, they're behaving quite differently than just normal uterine lining. And so for somebody hearing like that, it could have potentially been laid down before birth. I mean, that's kind yeah. of like, fuck. <laughs> I know. Um, but is there any reality that exists where, yeah, that could have happened and their somebody's immune system functions yeah. appropriately and effectively. Exactly. So it's not a problem. Exactly. Like this, pro I would say almost certainly there, if, if it, if it, if that's possible, if you know, the endometrial like tissue can end up there just during development, then in most people, because most of us don't get endometriosis. So in most of us, the immune system is not going to inflame those lesions. There, I mean, as you know, there's other, this is, quite strongly a genetic condition. So there's, I, I think I, it's probably not too bold a statement to say women are set up for this before birth. Like it's not, it's not a lifestyle disease. It's nothing people have done wrong that they end up with endo. I mean, not that, I, you know, um, not that many things are purely <laughs> things that you've done wrong, but endo definitely is, because uh, just to say again, some people will just never, 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 get endometriosis, no matter how high their estrogen is or how bad their gut is or anything like that, they're just, it's not going to happen because there, there's a genetic component. We know that because it runs in families, the genes associated with it so far are, they're just different ones, but some of them are linked to immune function, which will make sense given our conversation today. Um, so women who, for example, have a genetic 
predisposition to autoimmune diseases seem to be also be more likely to get endo, develop endo. And again, that's not to say, so funny how controversial it became to say that endometriosis is an autoimmune disease. I'm with you. We're not going to say that today. <laughs> um, we don't have to because arguably autoimmune disease is a very broad category anyways, describing lots of different things going on with lots of different tissues. So yeah. there's a Without a doubt, there's a very strong level of immune dysfunction happening with endo. And whether it falls under the autoimmune umbrella or not doesn't really matter at the end of the day. It's just about getting a bit more detail and understanding of what's happening and what intervent, more importantly, obviously, what interventions might work. Are there any specific uh, autoantibodies that are associated with endometriosis? Yeah, yeah there's anti auto antibodies against uh, endometrial tissue, which is probably no surprise. I was just thinking at a more, like every couple of weeks was another paper about sort of immune dysfunction and endometriosis. It's really hard to keep up with it actually. But yeah, there's, and then there's also broadly, often people with endometriosis have like the, some of the anti-nuclear antibodies, like some of the other general sort of autoimmune markers, not always though, which is again, adds to the complexity. But I mean, even just as you were describing that, um, how some women will react in a strange way to that retrograde menstruation yeah. that is potentially yeah. happening in all of us. I mean, even exactly. that just sounds so autoimmune in nature where it's like the immune system's like, wait a second, I don't recognize you. This yeah. shouldn't be here, right? Uh, yeah. So it's, it, there's clear, even just in this brief conversation, there's clearly yeah. so much overlap between the two, but to your point, I mean, does it even matter even with somebody with an uh, diagnosable autoimmune illness? It's like the treatment is still lifestyle factors, diet, and supporting the immune system anyway, which Mm -hmm. is kind of what we're seeing with endometriosis. So why don't we talk about, since I did kind of cue it up, the link between GI things, whether it's microbiome or SIBO or an IBS diagnosis, um, and endometriosis, what's there's multiple connections there. So what are they? Yeah, so you named it earlier. I think we'll just we'll talk a little bit about what's called the bacterial contamination hypothesis of endometriosis. And just to be clear, this is still a hypothesis. There's really only been a few papers so far. It made it into a new textbook about the immune system and endometriosis, which we can put in the show notes. It's Absolutely. A, yeah, it's an amazing resource. If you don't have it already, I recommend you buy it as a practitioner. Um, so it made it into there, but it's not the it's not the consensus currently. So the, um, the consensus is always changing with this disease, but I mean, the bacterial contamination hypothesis states that um, the presence of a higher level, like an abnormally high level of gram-negative bacteria and something called lipopolysaccharide, which is a, a toxin from the, that, the type of bacteria from their cell wall, um, that a higher level of that within the pelvis, like within the peritoneal cavity, not not just within the gut, but within the pelvis itself is, could be an initiating factor in the immune dysfunction of endometriosis. A lot of it's to do with um, an immune cell called the macrophage. In fact, there's one paper that calls endometriosis the disease of the macrophage. So macrophages are behaving very strangely with, in people with endometriosis. They're just, they're not, they're just not doing what they're supposed to do. They're not. Um, Can you describe what a macrophage or macrophage, yeah. as I might say? <laughs> yeah, macrophage, macrophage. No, it's all fine. It's American versus, <laughs> I, I have a mixed accent, actually. I'm Canadian slash New Zealand. Um, yeah, it's it's a type of immune cell. It's actually part of both the innate and the adaptive immune cell. So it's a type of white blood cell, basically, that um, has different jobs, like tons of different jobs. And one, it, it is one of the types of immune cell that can, um, engulf and uh, remove, you know, bad materials or we can, it can do that. It can, also I always think of it like it gobbles up. I don't know what, yeah, gobbles, if I like, like learned that in like, yeah, yeah the Pac-Man yeah. cell. Exactly. Yeah. There's a few cells that do that. And, um, and endometriosis, there is a double whammy. They're not, the macrophages aren't doing that gobbling up. Instead, they're releasing, they're freaking out, basically <laughs> releasing. I think freak out is not a bad explanation. Like they're releasing all these um, inflammatory cytokines that are signaling the T cells to release autoantibodies and do other, and the whole, and also some of the 
signals um, they're giving is also stimulating a nerve supply and stimulating a, a blood supply to the tissue. Like it, it's just a, it's a mess. Um, the macrophages are quite involved with that. So in the bacterial contamination hypothesis, what's notable is that macrophages are actually usually first on the scene for dealing with bacteria. So it's potentially this scenario, and again, we'll link to um, a little YouTube video I did about it, and we'll link to some of the research around it. But the potential scenario is that the, the bacteria themselves could either be coming retrograde, like up through the, from the uterus, like basically like, um, because our, our uterine lining has a microbiome as well, right? Like there's a microbiome everywhere. Like it's right. not just in our gut. Like we have bacteria everywhere. So the potentially you're getting um, the bacteria entering that way or, and or from the gut, like basically leaking, probably from the small intestine, like probably from small intestinal bacterial over, overgrowth. You mentioned SIBO. And, and that so this leaking, is where the LPS would be coming from. Yeah. Is like yeah. maybe from the gut, but also maybe Trans from. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Translocation, either translocation from the gut or up through the uterus. And there's quite a few lines of evidence. Um, we do know that women with endo have six times higher levels of um, gram-negative gram bacteria in their peritoneum compared to women without the disease. So that's, you know, quite strong. Um, we know that endometriosis just anecdotally can respond to antibiotics. Yeah. Um, and actually there's been some animal studies where they, it hasn't been clinically trialed giving antibiotics yet, but there's some animal studies where they give antibiotics and the endometriosis lesions dramatically shrank, which is quite- And symptoms as well, correct? Yeah. Well, they're animal studies, so I guess we don't know. Yeah, but sorry, like in the animal studies, we don't know in terms of, yeah. <laughs> Pains. I'm not sure if they measured the pain <laughs> symptoms of the mice, but like certainly um, in the, some of the anecdotal studies, yes, pain and lesions okay. have been known to reduce with antibiotic treatment. Only certain types of antibiotics seem to be have worked in the animal study. And I guess I'll just say at this point, you know, clinically, for some time now, I've been using antimicrobial herbal medicine. Or endo, not not continuously, not long term, but courses of them, kind of. That's important to note. Six weeks. Okay. Yeah, 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 because antimicrobial herbal medicines also have the potential to alter the gut microbiome. So you need to be a little careful with them, and preferably use them under guidance. Um, yeah, I mean that's just one. As well, we can talk about treatment a little bit, but as you know, that's just antimicrobials are only one kind of treatment for SIBO or, um, yeah, LPS. I, and I have a, an entire episode. I think I titled it why to not self-treat your gut with these like right. hard hitting antimicrobial sure. herbs, which is, you know, I'm just going to back up what you're saying. Um, because they do have collateral damage. I mean, that's just exactly it. No, do you, before, before you would, you know, in clinic with a patient, before you would put somebody on antimicrobial herbs, are you running other tests like a SIBO breath test or a stool test, um, on your patients with endometriosis or not always? Not always. Although I think that could be a good approach. I don't, one of the main reasons I don't do a lot of SIBO breath testing is it's just quite expensive, especially for us to access in New Zealand. I, yeah. I'm the type of clinician where I err on the side of when it seems like a reasonable course of action do I prefer not to do too much expensive functional testing, but um, often, I guess I'm often diagnosing it clinically or, you know, diagnosing you know, this with the degree of bloating and, you know, potentially reflux and other symptoms, this, and the context, you know, this seems very likely to have, to be SIBO and sort of go from that point. Because there really does seem to appear to be an over overlap between SIBO and or IBS and endometriosis. And I, I do think that a lot of women are sort of falsely diagnosed. I shouldn't even say falsely. They're maybe misdiagnosed with IBS when in reality, what's happening is it's, it's endometriosis. Can you speak a little bit to that? It's an incredible overlap. It's something like, and I, I think this is the right statistic and I'll, I'll give you the paper that, um, quote says, I think it's like 95% of women with endo have IBS. Like it's crazy. Like it's a, it's a really strong overlap. And I suspect a lot of, yes, it can be that 
um, being diagnosed with IBS, but you also have endo and you know that's sort of missed as part of the diagnostic process. I think it's also, I think it's common to have both. Mm -hmm. And the explanation, it's been different mechanistic explanations for that. I think a lot of the time it's been sort of thought, well, endo can affect the gut, which it can. So there can be sort of a cause and effect going in that direction. But obviously through my lens and some of this later latest research, I'm thinking the gut problems are a big part of what's driving the disease, not causing it. Because I'll just say again, you if if you don't if if a person doesn't have the genetics or the epigenetics or some of the the factors that set them up for endometriosis, you could have terrible IBS and SIBO and never get endometriosis. So I just want to be really clear. It's not the primary cause, but it's potentially an initiating factor that it's perfect storm, right? Like if you've got um, the underlying immune, if you've got the underlying genetics of an immune system that is going to do this kind of dysfunction, plus layer on top of that, epigenetics, do your audience know what epigenetics is? There's, um, yes. So, yes. yeah. So this is um, changes to gene expression that can actually potentially from exposure to environmental toxins that can be passed on to subsequent generations. I think this is part of why we're getting a worsening of endometriosis. I suspect there is an epigenetic thing going on with the disease. Can you just yeah. say a little bit more about how that can be passed on? This, this like blows my mind. I mean, yeah. just, the more I hear about this, the more I'm just like, this is so fascinating to me, how we can pass yeah. that on generation to generation. Yes. Yeah, so, and obviously it, epigenetics applies to every aspect of health, not just endometriosis. Like it's a very broad area of study. And, but in the, to give an example from endometriosis, there's some suggestion there's again, again, mostly based on animal studies, but that exposure to dioxin, which we shouldn't even be exposed to too much anymore. I mean, that's a, that's a toxin that there was a lot of it, you know, 50 years ago, and it's been banned in most places. And we're seeing reducing levels of that toxin, fortunately, but for example, our grandmothers or great great grandmothers would have been exposed to that. And there's some evidence that it um, epigenetically alters expression of the um, progesterone receptor. So there could be some degree of progesterone resistance. This is, you know, speaking a little bit more to the hormonal aspect, but um, yeah, and, and that progesterone resistance can be passed on. So if like our great grandmother, you know, grandmother acquired that, or that happened to her because of exposure to toxins, potentially she's going to pass, especially if she was pregnant at the time, then her female, you know, offspring might've been, have altered progesterone receptor sensitivity and that gets passed down. I mean, there's, there's gonna be lots of things like that related to the immune system and the hormonal system that is being passed down. Just as an aside, we know that's happening with PCOS for sure. It's a totally different condition, but the polycystic ovary syndrome is amplifying generation by generation because um, when female fetuses are exposed to higher levels of androgens or male hormones, they're like five times more likely to develop PCOS as an adult. So this is just, this is again, not related to endometriosis, but. Um, so what, wait a second. Are you saying that PCOS is not a disease of what you put in your mouth? <laughs> Correct. Yeah. You guys, I have to say this. So people don't, that's a sarcasm. Yeah. It's very, yes, very I hear you, yeah. heavy sarcasm for everybody yeah. listening, uh, particularly in light of some recent Instagram yeah. videos. Oh, really? Uh, I'm, I'm out of the loop, but anyway, keep going. Yeah. Stay out of the loop. Okay. Yeah. Keep yourself stayed and yeah. staying and stay out of it. Hey, let's take a quick break so we can talk about Organifi. If you're interested in hormonal health, I suggest you check out their Harmony Blend. It was specifically designed for PMS support to help balance out female hormones and to give you a little energy boost with the adaptogenic herbs that they use like Shatavari and Maca. So it's a cacao and Maca blend. I happen to love those two flavors together. So tasty. Uh, we also have ginger and turmeric added to the mix. So it's kind of like a spicy treat. Chase tree berries also featured, which is an herb that has been long shown to support female hormones. So I highly recommend that product. It's really tasty. You could also look into their gold powder, one of their best sellers. That's a turmeric ginger blend. Both are anti-inflammatory. And listen, menstruation, having a period is a naturally inflammatory process. And so if you're experiencing 
wonkiness during those times of the month, uh, it's not terribly uncommon, especially if you have underlying inflammatory stuff going on. It kind of just throws a little bit of gasoline on the fire. So doing anti-inflammatories during your period is a smart bet. Turmeric and ginger are two things that I highly recommend. Uh, This product, Gold, also has lemon balm and magnesium. Both of those are calming and soothing and can really, I mean, I drink it all the time, not just when I'm on my period, but it's a really good tool if you do have PMS symptoms. Both of these blends, the Harmony and the Gold, are great for post-meal sweet treats. You mix a little bit with either hot water. I personally like it with non-dairy milk. And uh, if you're somebody who has a sweet tooth, check them out. Head to Organifi.com forward slash funk. So that's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com forward slash funk or use code funk to save you 20% on any of your orders. One thing that I hear from clients often is I used to be able to drink wine and now I can no longer tolerate. And there's a reason for that. We talk a lot on the show about processed food, but wine can be extremely processed as well. There are 76 additives legally approved for use in winemaking. This can be dyes, thickeners, GMO yeast, And the top 20 wines sold in the U.S., the most popular ones, all contain high levels of sugar. So my answer to that problem is dry farm wines. I've had a subscription for them uh, for years, and I absolutely love every single bottle they sell. They are organically, biodynamically grown, sugar-free, low alcohol, and they source wines from small family growers. So if you're like me and you enjoy the occasional glass of wine while you're cooking with your family, head to dryfarmwines.com forward slash funk. For Functional Nutrition Podcast listeners, they're offering an extra bottle in your first box for a penny. You get free shipping and delivery straight to your door. So check them out and enjoy. All right, my athletes and my fitness freaks, are you getting enough electrolytes? You kind of need them. They're kind of a big deal. You lose a lot through sweat, but just don't be replacing them with any of the junk. No sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no fillers, no yuck. You need Element. It's not only delicious and wicked convenient, mixes in water super easily, but it also contains a science-backed electrolyte ratio, 1,000 milligrams sodium, 200 milligrams potassium, 60 milligrams of magnesium. You can get a free sample pack that's eight single serve packets for free with any Element order when you go to drinkelement.com forward slash funk. The deal's only available through my unique link to thank you for listening to the show, drinklmnt.com forward slash F-U-N-K. You can try it risk-free. Okay. So I think this is fascinating to me. Absolutely fascinating. Um, And I I definitely want to kind of segue more into the hormone you know, part of yes. this discussion. Yeah. I do, I do want to ask about visceral hypersensitivity. I know yes. that we see that with IBS. Is that something yeah. that, that also we see with endometriosis? Yeah. So that's been cited as one of the potential mechanisms for the strong overlap between IBS and endo. Sort of the idea that, yeah, just this sort of generalized reactive state um, of the nervous system and potentially the immune system in the area from having um, IBS therefore affecting endometriosis or vice versa, like having the inflammation of the endometriosis affect the gut. Is that your understanding of the visceral hypersensitivity? For sure. I almost think about it. It's almost like the way that I think about it is like almost like a trauma response where it's like the body is like pitched into this hypervigilance where it's like we've had all of this pain and now we're just kind of scanning the environment for pain, pain, pain. So any cue that might be sort of like, nondescript to somebody else kind of like registers in the brain as pain. And then we actually feel that pain for sure, which makes sense for sure. And with, and actually that's a whole other area of research and endometriosis is just this, um, yeah, like a, um, really revved up nervous system and the pain, as you probably know, like from working with your clients, like the pain syndrome, once that's set up, even once you remove the organic, like if you, if even the say surgery to remove the lesions in the case of endometriosis or even effective treatment, you can still have the nervous system sort of locked in this pattern of pain. So yeah, that's why nervous system treatments can also be 
helpful. As you said at the beginning, it's a complex disease for sure. (laughs) I mean, what nervous system treatments, I think just support just everything from top to tail anyway, (laughs) it's just good medicine. Um, okay. So you had mentioned progesterone. So let's talk about how hormones can impact endometriosis. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. So we'll start simply and then we'll get a little more complicated, but def- obviously estrogen stimulates endometriosis. That is a fact. Um, there's very little doubt about that. That's why the main conventional treatments are sh- to shut down estrogen. That's why the disease typically kicks in at puberty when estrogen goes up normally. And also there's some interesting papers about actually the confluence of, um, how macrophages react in the presence of estradiol, our main estrogen plus LPS toxin. It's like, that's part of a perfect storm for them. So this is, this brings me to another point, which is that um, both estrogen and progesterone, and we'll get to progesterone in a minute, but they not only act directly on the lesions, but they act on the immune system and they act on the microbiome. So, So they're like, they're involved, you know, so abnormal responses to hormones are also affecting the immune side of things and also affecting the nervous system side of things. So there's a lot of crosstalk between micro, you know, between um, the lesions and the immune system and the nervous system and yeah, and the hormones. So um, progesterone should have, uh, so sorry, estrogen also generally has an immune stimulating effect, like an inflammatory effect um, generally, although in in some contexts, estrogen can be anti-inflammatory, it's both. But yeah, I know it's, it's so yeah. tricky. You're talking about yeah. hormones and they, they're in the immune system. Yeah. It's like, yeah. how much time do you yeah. have? Um, yeah. Do you, so to, since we're talking about estrogen and the conventional yeah. strategy, the treatment yeah. plan for endometriosis is to kind of like turn off estrogen, shut it down. Yeah. Is that effective? It can be. I mean, it, it can be. Yes. So I guess, but my, through my lens, I, I want my patients to have the best of all worlds, if possible, right? Like, so, because we need estrogen. So I feel sad when the solution to a disease is to shut down a hormone that we actually need for tons of other things, right? So I feel like, if, depending on how well pe- patients are responding to it, like if, they, if people can get a response from the more immune system treatment, nervous system treatment, and then be able to tolerate the ups and downs of their own natural hormones, that's a win because then they're not getting pain from their estrogen, but they're getting brain benefits, heart benefits, all the things that we, because estrogen is pretty much an essential hormone too. Well, it's close to essential. Like we, yeah, we um, benefit from it greatly. So that's why I'm not a, like a huge fan of the hormonal shutdown approach, but I can understand like if the symptoms are severe, then sometimes that has to happen for a while. Let's talk about progesterone sure. a little bit because um, progesterone should have a down-regulating effect on the lesions, except they, a lot of in endometriosis, there does seem to be this degree of progesterone resistance, which I talked about earlier, which may be epigenetic from toxin exposure or you know, different causes. Um, but progesterone also has a calming regulating effect on the immune system. That's true for immune diseases generally, actually. Um, progesterone, for a lot of different types of autoimmune diseases, progesterone can help to regulate. And uh, uh, yeah, and progest- by progesterone, I mean, I'm talking about our real progesterone. As opposed to progestins, the progestins of hormonal birth control can also, actually can also um, help to downregulate endometriosis lesions. That's the hormonal IUD, for example, that's a progestin called levonorgestrel. It does seem to act locally in the pelvis and can provide some relief. So progestins can also downregulate lesions, but I just, just for clarity's sake, I'm talking about pr- real progesterone can as well. Um, and I wanna speak about androgens because without getting too technical, I just wanna point out this really interesting research that testosterone and androgens um, down regulates endometriosis lesions. It's potentially, um, yeah, like um, the problem is taking androgens can give you androgen side effects like facial hair and you know PCOS symptoms. So it's not usually pursued as a treatment strategy. It used to be, they used to give um, 
progestins that were a lot more testosterone-like as treatment for endo, but I think because of the skin breakouts and facial hair side effects, they've sort of they've removed that. But one argument against uh, one argument against the pill for treatment of endometriosis, and again, I'll just say like if people are taking the pill and getting relief, then that's fine. You know, I'm not I'm not making a blanket statement that it shouldn't be used or anything like that, but one consideration is um, some pills, depending on which the dose of estrogen and, the, and um, which type of progestin is used, some of them have a kind of an anti-androgen effect. Those might be the types of pills that are used to treat PCOS, for example. That's potentially not ideal for endometriosis because actually androgens, male type hormones, have a beneficial effect on endometriosis. It's actually really fascinating. I, I will... Um, just through my evolutionary biology lens, there's a couple papers talking about androgen exposure in utero and how, as I mentioned, high androgen exposure potentially can predispose people to PCOS, but low androgen exposure, and again, that could be from environmental toxin exposure, like an abnormally low androgen exposure can predispose to endometriosis. So it's- And also yeah. you, you, you tend to not feel real great when you've got low androgens. You know, yeah, exactly. like I kind of we think about it. like yeah. androgens is kind of like get up and go. It's like yeah. your like your vigor, your vitality. And so, I mean, we tend to hear like, it's like the same thing with estrogen. We hear all of the negative side of our, you know, negative, um, like the downfalls of too much estrogen, sure. same th deal with like too much androgens, but For also sure. we need these hormones, For sure. you know? Yeah. And also androgens turn into estrogen. So they're related, but yes. Um, Yes, there's a sweet spot. Anyway, that's sort of a, a segue, but there's like hormonally, there's once again with this disease, there's hormonally, it's there's quite a complicated set of things going on. Can but you, I guess, yeah, yeah. Can you just speak a little bit more about um, progesterone resistance and what that means? Yeah. Well, I think just generally it means the lesions themselves, the progesterone receptors on the endometriosis lesions are not responding to progesterone the way they should. Like if they were responding to progesterone properly, they would, progesterone would downregulate and shrink the lesions basically, but there's, there's okay. they're not responding to it. That's what I mean by resistance. So this progesterone resistance is yes. really kind of um, really specific to endometriosis. Uh, that's a good question. That, I mean, that's, I'm sure it exists outside of endometriosis. That's the main disease that I've heard it discussed. I mean, I think there would also be some progesterone resistance of the immune cells as well. Cause as I said, progesterone would normally have That's true. a regulating effect on the T cells and reduce autoantibodies. Both androgens and progesterone should reduce that kind of autoimmune type immune response. Okay. That's really helpful. Um, yeah. what about mast cells in histamine? I know that there's like a whole yeah, huge conversation in and of itself, but I, I mean, know. there, it seems that there's some links to mast cells and the histamine response as well. Yeah. I mean, mast cells are all in there involved. I mean, they're another immune cell that is dysregulated during endometriosis. I feel like it's possibly a smaller player than the macrophages, but there's almost certainly going to be some crosstalk between what the mast cells and the macrophages are doing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And as you probably know, your listeners might know, I mean, there are ways. So if someone's got a very histamine picture, like getting hives and headaches and fluid and that whole histamine, I think it, it's definitely worth calming that histamine mast cell response as part of a broader immune endometriosis treatment. I would, I think probably calming the mast cell response is not going to be a standalone Got it. fix for everybody, but it can be a factor. And as you know, I mean, mast cell histamine response can play a role in um, premenstrual mood symptoms as well. So that can be a nice side benefit if you can relieve some of that. Exactly. And that, that you know, the whole like estrogen yeah. interaction too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, why don't we transition into some treatment strategies okay. and like, yeah. kind of like where we can get the most bang for our bucks and like the heavy hitting, like more natural remedies and strategies. Sure. For sure. Well, we can start I'm with food, maybe. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious to hear your thoughts. So, um, I do need to speak about avoiding dairy and gluten. And we can yeah. talk it through. I mean, I, 
listen, you, you are the one in the trenches for the past 25 years. Tell us what you've experienced. Everyone else can regulate their own emotional reaction to what you're about to say. That's their responsibility. Your responsibility is to tell us what you see. Just to tell it. Okay. So I'll preface it by saying I eat wheat and dairy. So I'm not saying like every single person that has to eat, like has to avoid gluten and dairy. Like I'm just like setting that as the stage. Like most people are fine with those foods. So um, and some people, as you probably know, because both wheat and dairy are FODMAPs, some people kind of bloat with them and can get a response by reducing them. And, you know, so there's a whole gradient of, you know, who needs to avoid those two foods. But I guess my experience is that when there is active autoimmune type, not necessarily autoimmune, but immune dysfunction, that's when gluten and a1 casein need to be on the radar as foods that again do not 100 did not cause the disease like they 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 didn't but this is an immune system that is already upset because of genetics epigenetics potentially microbiome issues exposure to lps toxin like combination of things and in that setting gluten and the dairy protein can drive or worsen that condition. So this is my statement. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly open to push back on this, but I would say, um, I think it's possible there are women out there with endometriosis who do not need to strictly avoid gluten, but I've never met them. So, well, it's like our model of health where inflammation matters and it does, I I think it's really important to suss out any, uh, inflammatory and or immune triggers. Um, and some of that is food and really a lot of that is, can be, you know, we can see that with gluten and dairy. And so it's just the way that I think about it. It's like, we're providing options for people, try it out, see how you do. Most people that I've met that are struggling with the pain in the mind F that is endometriosis are really willing to try multiple strategies. And this is just something to, to try. If it helps clinically, what I would often do, like usually my default is if someone has confirmed endometriosis, I'm thinking, I'm usually saying something like, look, I think we're moving to a trial of strictly gluten-free for three months while we're, you know, thinking about it and deciding whether to do that, I will sometimes, well, I'll always, before asking someone to come strictly off gluten, I'll always do a screen for celiac disease just to make sure they're not actually full-blown celiac, which as you know, would, you know, be masked by then um, gluten-free. So I'll do a celiac screen. This is the kind of testing I do, not necessarily functional testing, but more basic testing. I will sometimes do the celiac gene or genotype, which doesn't put it this way, it, being pot, like having one of the celiac genes does not mean, does not necessarily mean you have, what well, person has to be strictly gluten-free. It depends on their, if they have symptoms or not, but being negative for a celiac gene would make me think, I don't think they, the other way, like being negative for a celiac genotype, usually I'm not too worried about avoiding gluten, if that makes sense. So this is like now describing what would be in the literature called non-celiac gluten sensitivity mm-hmm. does seem to correlate with the celiac genotype. It's kind of a subclinical celiac, but it's, um, and then I will often do, I'm often testing thyroid antibodies as well for uh, various reasons. It's one of my favorite tests. I just feel like that gives quite a good, so this is what's called anti-TPO or antibodies or thyroid antibodies. This is an autoimmune response that affects the thyroid. And if it's quite, the presence of those antibodies is quite strongly correlated with gluten, non-celiac gluten sensitivities. So if those are present, even if thyroid function is normal, that's another piece of evidence that we need to try this. And it, it's, it doesn't work at all to just do it 80% or 90%, like to kind of come off gluten. It actually does not, that potentially does nothing the, if you, for, for this disease. And again, acknowledging people who maybe just have IBS or FODMAP bloating, they might find they can reduce wheat by, you know, s- switch it out, reduce it by 70 or 80%. And that's good enough for them. But I'm talking about something different. This is an immune reaction right. to gluten potentially. Right. So in that scenario, it, what's usually involved with me, like with my patients, it's three months, like, and talk about it, pre-discuss, you know, how is this is going to work, but plan for three months, strictly gluten-free, potentially casein-free and as a trial. So it takes three months to kind of see what it's going to do. And then 
have to be strict for that time, but it's not necessarily being strict forever. It's just testing it out and seeing what kind of benefits that can deliver. Um, Similar yeah. to like oh. elimination provocation. So if, if yeah. they notice their symptoms reduced with this they dietary need- approach, that's pretty, you know, that's good information. That's good data. And then you could always challenge the system. And back. Be, you yeah, know, you could add back gluten. Keeping in mind, there could be quite a strong, there could be a delay, which have you found with gluten, but like there can be a delay, like coming out, you have to be strictly off gluten sometimes, especially with endometriosis for maybe a couple of months before you really notice something and vice versa, putting it back in, it might take a little while to ramp up again. But um, yeah, so that's, I mean, that's part of it. That is not a, that's not going to be an absolute fix for everyone. <laughs> to be clear from what we've been saying, like there's so many parts to this disease, but that often feels to be one part that's required. And then, yeah, then I'm looking at, um, well, when we're talking about diet, can you speak to this nickel allergy? I'm like what you see. And is this something that, that folks should be aware of? Yeah. So there's been a couple papers about the role of nickel allergy in both IBS and endometriosis. Now it's not a nickel toxicity, just to be clear. It's not that at all. It's, um, because it's fine for us. We have an intake of nickel just from a normal diet. Um, most of us just clear that. It's it's not a toxin situation. It's just, but people, some people, as you know, like react to nickel and they, you'll know if that's you, if you react to cheap jewelry, basically, if you get like a skin rash from nickel containing jewelry. And I think the mechanism of well, like they're, they're picking up a correlation with nickel sensitivity and both IBS and endometriosis. And I think the idea is that in, again, it's going to be partly the visceral hypersensitivity we're talking about, like, but when the gut, when the mucosa of the gut is having an allergic reaction to nickel in food, potentially that can translate into both gut symptoms and potentially endometriosis symptoms. So there's not a lot of detail on that currently what's of course anytime so all these things so nickel allergy FODMAP you know gluten dairy sensitivity it all comes down to kind of the same like it's wheat and dairy through and through a lot of those foods so it's like at the end of the day there's possibly several explanations why people can feel better coming off those foods I guess the other high nickel foods just to think about would be a lot of um canned food so anyone listening I guess I'll say it's not a one-size-fits-all so I, I would say if if you have if you have endometriosis and you know you react you have a nickel allergy or you react to cheap jewelry it's probably worth taking a look at the list of high nickel foods and trying some time off those like i think that seems like a reasonable okay so um, this is not yeah. something somebody steps into your office and has endometriosis and you're like we're going on a low nickel diet right oh no okay yeah and you're clinically yeah, it doesn't come up that often. I, I try to, I don't know if I, every time I try to ask, ask about that um, reaction to, sure, to yeah. jewelry, it's kind of just a good part of the clinical intake. Yeah. And then in terms of other treatments, as you, you know, we've said, there's so many parts, I guess if there is SIBO or a strong indication of SIBO, I would, as a clinician, I feel that's quite important to treat that. And we can refer to your other SIBO podcast about all the different treatments for that, because it's not just the antimicrobials, that's part of it. Well, that's what I use as part of it, but you can use um, different types of, um, you know, dietary fiber and probiotics and, you know, um, just lots of different options. (laughs) We definitely don't have to have the whole how to treat discussion. No, we won't. We won't do that now. And then um, nourishing the immune system generally. So the immune system is an active system. It's very nutrient hungry. It requires a lot. Um, for example, I'll just go through what I would consider the top three, four immune system nutrients. I think zinc is right up there. There's a little bit of research around zinc deficiency and endometriosis. Immune systems need the immune system needs zinc. Selenium is in there. Um, not necessarily to be supplemented, but at least to maybe talk to someone and make sure you're getting that um, in diet. Where the nutrient deficiency comes in potentially is anyone who's exclusively plant-based. I would just say the key endometriosis immune system nutrients that I'm in the process of listing are actually ones that are missing mostly from plant foods. I mean, they exist in small amounts, but 
zinc, selenium, well, sorry, selenium you can get from Brazil nuts. That's easy from a plant-based perspective. Yeah. Um, but uh, zinc is harder to get from plant foods. Vitamin A, preformed vitamin A is so interesting. And there's actually a few papers all around vitamin A and endometriosis, like just all focused on that. And because, I mean, vitamin A is regulating potentially to the lesions, like to the endometrial, like tissue itself, it's regulating to the immune system. So, and as to say, I mean, you don't want to, you have to be careful with vitamin A because it has a toxicity associated with it. So talk to a practitioner about that. I mean, if you're eating some animal products, you're usually getting enough vitamin A, but I would say anyone who's exclusively plant-based, well, I don't know what you feel. I feel like they should probably- Oh, hundred percent. I did an entire podcast on that topic alone. And I think that preformed vitamin A is a bit of an unsung hero, particularly when it comes to the immune system and autoimmunity yeah. helps to regulate T regulatory cells, secretory exactly. IG. I mean, it just does so many things. So, um, that's, you know, that's a really good one to hear. What about like from a, you mentioned that vitamin A has some effect on the lesions. Is there anything yeah. in terms of reducing the size of those? I mean, it sounds like just overall supporting the immune system can be helpful there, but yeah. any like specific targeted strategies towards reducing the lesions? Oh, just like more broadly or specifically around vitamin A or just, Oh no, yeah, not like, vitamin A, yeah. just like anything, any, well, the one, the, the one, I mean, as you can imagine, there hasn't been a lot of clinical trials of nutrients, but the one that was like a superstar, it was, it was a study in 2013. So it's almost, it's nine years ago now, but they used N-acetylcysteine and they got uh, in a clinical trial, a human trial, and they got amazing results. And to my knowledge, that trial has not been repeated. And I'm not sure why, because, and I mean, I always feel like I'm doing an infomercial when I talk about N-acetylcysteine, but it's <laughs> quite nice. Like it's, it's regulating to the immune system. It's um, reduces oxidative stress because um, oxidative stress plays a role in this disease as well. Like it's inexpensive. It's usually quite easy to tolerate. It helps with anxiety and other symptoms. So that's one I do prescribe quite a lot. And often that can be taken longer term. Oh, it can. Okay. So that's what I, is that something you do longer term? Let's say somebody had a surgery to remove the the lesions. Is that something you would like have them take on an ongoing basis? Yeah, potentially. Exactly. So that would be a good scenario where they're supposedly clear of the lesions. So now they're just trying to prevent them from growing back. Yes. a, A typical patient of mine might be on you know, trialing the gluten-free, dairy-free, taking zinc and N-acetylcysteine longish term. I mean, that might be a quite a common prescription and that's not too burdensome. You know, like it is, it can be hard if you start taking like loads and loads of some supplements, but just picking a couple key ones can be um, sustainable long-term. So yeah, zinc, N-acetylcysteine. Um, some of my patients use progesterone. They do take real progesterone. Um, which again is, could be used instead of a progestin. It's just real progesterone has some nice side benefits, um, as well. But one thing about real progesterone is it cannot prevent pregnancy. So if there's contraception is also required, then something like the hormonal IUD, that might be a better option. And then the last question I'll ask is about iodine. Cause I, I, I think yes. that you can use high dose iodine. No, we're not going to like tell everybody on the podcast, mm-hmm. like go start supplementing with high dose iodine, but I'm just curious why that, why that's effective. I know. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you brought it up. Cause I was going to bring it up just a few minutes ago when I was listing the nutrients for, I mean, well, the immune system loves iodine. Um, that's it's essential. So it's not, a lot of us think of iodine only for the thyroid, but actually lots of different parts of physiology use it. Um, so it potentially is immune regulating, it's antimicrobial, and it also seems to downregulate estrogen receptors, as in calm, calm, est- so calm estrogen receptors, so that estrogen does not cause such a um, stimulating effect on the cells. Like normally estrogen stimulates cell division, basically. And so Iodine can help. Iodine can help to downregulate that. There's a bit of research around that, particularly around breast tissue, which is obviously also very estrogen sensitive. The tricky thing about uh, tricky thing about iodine, I'll just say it, just like just so people, um, as you've just said, you do need to be careful. By high dose, 
just to very briefly, like a normal dose, like in a multivitamin would be like 200 micrograms of iodine. That would kind of be a standard dose. It's kind of about, about the amount you'd get from iodized salt or sort of general intake. I'm talking about in the range of 1,000 to 3,000 micrograms. That's what I would consider moderately high dose. But just to be clear, there are products online, like people are out there, people are out there taking and selling 30,000 micrograms. So there's a lot of variation. So I'm talking like the difference between 200, 2,000, and 30,000. So okay. I would say do not take a 30,000 microgram. <laughs> like I think under no circumstances take it that much. Um, this what I would call kind of moderate dose iodine is, is only safe for people who don't have underlying existing thyroid conditions, including the autoimmune thyroid. That's one of the reasons I test thyroid antibodies so often because I just, I'm trying to decide if it's, if it's safe, if yeah. it's safe to take iodine or not. And if there's a, like a clinically significant level of thyroid antibodies, if it's, a, you know, even slightly above the normal, the range, the cutoff, then I don't, I don't give iodine in that case. And we'll just find other ways to treat. But for people who don't have that, the thyroid antibodies, I, yeah, I do prescribe it I, and I monitor it. So you basically, you want to check if you decide to do that under the guidance of a clinician, just make sure you maybe check your thyroid six months in just to make sure it's stable. And you wouldn't, wouldn't, it's not necessarily a long-term treatment again. It might just be something you do for six or 12 months. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, this is, I don't want to keep you any longer, but this yeah. is phenomenal. And it gives, you know, it gives, I think listeners a great resource to even take to their mm -hmm. own practitioners and say, Hey, can we build out yeah. a plan for me too? So they're not going yeah. about it alone. A lot of these strategies you can do yourself, light lifestyle diet, but then some of the supplement stuff, you might want to, you might want to seek out some, some help with. For sure. And also just, just as a one statement, like a one sentence thing, we talked about nervous system, obviously. So I think some like in, incorporating a pelvic a pelvic floor therapist or, you know, that whole side of things is very important as well for this disease. Yeah. And I'm going to, we uh, interviewed a pelvic floor specialist a couple of times. So I'll interview, uh, excuse me, link to those notes for everybody Perfect. listening. So they yeah. understand what yeah. that, what you're even talking about. Yeah, um, exactly. Thank you so much. Can you tell people yeah. where they can find more of your work because it's brilliant? Yeah. Oh <laughs> yeah. I'm easy to find. So my blog is Lara Braden. Dot com And from there, you can link to my podcast and see my blog posts and link to my two books, Period Repair Manual and Hormone Repair Manual. And all my social media is at Lara Braden. It's easy. Perfect. Yeah, it's super easy. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. It was, a, yeah. it was a treat to have you here. Thanks for having me, Aaron. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Functional Nutrition Podcast. If you got something from today's show, don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Take care of you.